Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to The Love Code. It's great having you here. This is an opportunity to have wonderful, in-depth, inspiring, and uplifting conversations, because that's really the purpose of The Love Code. The Love Code is a place where we can be inspired, where we can expand our horizons, go deep within the wisdom of who we are, and connect with the great power we have to transform our lives and to heal ourselves so we remember who we are. And as always, it's just such a pleasure to have you with me as we journey today into the Gita wisdom. So my guest today is Joshua Green, and we're going to be exploring the Gita wisdom, the spiritual wisdom of India and um, it's just my pleasure to have Joshua Green on the show today. So just let me share a little bit about Joshua. After 13 years in ashrams of Europe and India, Joshua Green returned to New York and taught Hinduism and Holocaust history at Hofstra University. He is an Emmy Award-nominated producer, and his documentary films are seen on PBS and Discovery. He sits on the Board of Advisors to the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University, and while Senior Vice President for Global Affairs at Reuter Finn Communications in the early 2000s, he served as Director of Strategic Planning for the United Nations Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders. His yoga-related books include Here Comes the Sun, The Spiritual and Musical Journey of George Harrison, Swami in a Strange Land, How Krishna Came to the West, a biography of A.C. Bhagavadanta Swami, and Gita Wisdom, an introduction to India's essential yoga text. So we are in for such a treat, such an enlightening conversation, and I just, I'm so happy to welcome Joshua Green to the show today. So Joshua, hello and welcome to The Love Code. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much. But Joshua, I would probably say that you do not lead lead a boring life. Would I be correct in saying that? <laughs> uh, it's been quite a ride. Um, <laughs> you know, I just turned seventy-two last week, Happy and birthday. it was a uh, thank you. <laughs> it was a wonderful <laughs> uh, excuse for kind of just going down memory lane and, and thinking about all the many adventures along the way. And lessons learned, and um, uh, eyes opened <laughs> in so many different directions. Um, I'm very grateful. It's it, it's uh, it's been a varied um, life. I've met some extraordinary people, not the least of which my my teacher, Prabhupada. He's known by the honorific title Prabhupada. You you did a good job pronouncing his Sanskrit name, Bhaktivedanta Swami. <laughs> Uh, it might just be easier to call him Prabhupada, which is a, a, another Sanskrit term. Prabhu means master, and pada refers to feet. And so one at whose feet others gather, the master at whose feet others gather for learning, is the meaning of his honorific title. Well, you have lived a very rich and varied life. I, I, I do want to talk about your... Your, not only your personal journey uh, with your guru and the, the writings that you have and talking about the Bhagavad Gita and the 
wisdom found within there. I, I, I just have to ask you, however, before we jump into that profound area, what was the journey that got you so committed to the Holocaust history and writing about these stories of uh, survival and inspiration from the Holocaust? Well, it's tempting to say that it's because of a family connection. My mother's mother was one of only two in the family of 13 who uh, the rest of whom were murdered and uh, there were dozens of family members from Poland and Austria and Eastern Europe who died in the concentration camps but it, I don't, I'm not sure that would be an accurate explanation it was something that was not talked about when I was growing up so I really wasn't aware of it the first time my eyes were focused on this very dark period of history was when my wife's late father, Alan Fortunoff, of the Fortunoff Jewelry family, um, introduced me to the, the program he was supporting at Yale University, which was the earliest video archive of um, testimony by witnesses to the Holocaust, not just survivors of the camps and the death marches, but also so-called bystanders, uh, liberation soldiers, clergy, um, some perpetrators stepped forward to give their testimony. And I don't think I've ever watched or listened to an interview the same since. Uh, it was an I just, just such an amazing experience to um, come close to the uh, events of these per people's lives, um, uh, an experience that I don't think we can approach in any other way except to hear from the eyewitnesses. And I was just very compelled by that. I had been teaching in, in yoga studios. I had been teaching the Bhagavad Gita, which is sometimes called the Bible of the East. It's the primary wisdom text from India. And people would ask me, you know, you're you have this kind of background. How do you reconcile in your mind this beautiful vision you have of a purposeful creation as described by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita? How do you put that together in the same worldview with what happened in Europe 70, 80 years ago? How do, you, how do those two things fit in the same universe? And I didn't have a very good answer. So when my late father-in-law offered me an opportunity to work with the Yale Archive. I took it because I wanted to understand better how how can there it, – it's classic. It's called theodicy. It's a, it, the challenge in, in, in philosophical circles is called theodicy. How do you reconcile uh, evil and a purposeful creation? How do those two things coexist? So it's been a, a, an important – part of the journey for me. Yes, because you have, you know, you've written about this, you have stories, you've put, you know, you've created as books and obviously um, have done presentations, videos. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting, um, you know, an interesting uh, time of history to delve into and, and, and not an easy one by any means. It's still hard for me to, um, 
watch things related to the Holocaust, I have to say. You know, right. and, and uh, I, go ahead. <laughs> well, it, it, what you just said rang a bell. It's why, for example, the diary of Anne Frank is the most popular book about the Holocaust. Um, Anne Frank, there were postage stamps to Anne Frank. There have been films and plays. There are video games. There's a, hundreds of books written about her, and yet she knew nothing about the Holocaust. And I've been on a campaign for the last 30 years to get teachers to not use the Diary of Anne Frank as a Holocaust book. If you have a course on adolescent development, it's a lovely book. But she knew nothing about the Holocaust. I'm going to be a writer after the war, she said. And she was dreaming about her first kiss with the young man who was in hiding with her in the attic. Why is that? Precisely because reading Diary of Anne Frank, young people do not have to be exposed to the realities of the horror. Parents and teachers don't want to expose young people to that kind of traumatic imagery. So Diary of Anne Frank is considered an acceptable alternative, except that you really don't learn anything about the Holocaust studying that book. So it needs to be coupled with other kinds of material. Yeah, you know, I um, my uh, my brother took a vacation to Europe one year for the explicit purpose of visiting those locations at those camps. Personally, I couldn't think of a more depressing holiday. <laughs> I don't think it was a holiday. It was his pilgrimage, right? But, um, you know, I just have to tap <clears throat> into some deep place of sorrow in people to go. I, I give him credit. I mean, I think it was a courageous thing to do because I, I'd rather be on the mountaintops of the Himalayas or into the jungles of the Amazon than go to visit Auschwitz and Dachau. Of course. Who who wants to be immersed into that kind of, of tragedy and human suffering and, and, and torture and atrocity? It's It's too much to bear, which is precisely why so much of the popular media about the Holocaust goes in the diametric opposite direction. I mean, many people have seen now Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List. Well, if you've seen it, you know that at the end of the film, black and white turns to glorious color, and the survivors of the camps link arms and walk over the hillside singing Israeli folk songs. That never happened. That's not history. That's Hollywood. Mr. Spielberg is a storyteller. And, you know, he tells the story very well. But he couldn't resist that temptation of putting a kind of redemptive spin at the end of the Holocaust when really there was none. And for me, as someone who's always being pointed at in my family as, oh, he's the spiritual guy over there, yoga, he's vegan, and all that stuff, practices this and that. I didn't quite know how to explain it to people. And it's emerged over time. I mean, a short form explanation might be to say that when we turn away from our own true nature, from the core self, the Atma, as it's described in Sanskrit, we can fall terribly far and become capable of doing things that 
in a conversation like this under normal circumstances, we would never think we're capable of doing. And yet that's what happened during the Nazi era. If we turn toward that true self, that inner light, then we're capable of extraordinary, miraculous things and can soar very high. Yeah, I just think we're at a dangerous time because we have we have sunk so deep into materialism and um, with the <clears throat> intelligence and the, the brain power that we've created. So we now have all this AI technology and the talk of transhumanism. We're so it's it's kind of a dangerous time, don't you think? In terms of a spiritual awareness. Yeah. It, it is. Um, <clears throat> we have all of these sophisticated toys now, don't we? I mean, you know, mm. recombinant DNA splicing and um, the kind of super fast, practically f- frictionless transmission of data and, uh, you know, artificial intelligent crunching of data that, you know, essentially makes people slaves to their own neurological patterns. You know, what, what a, when you buy something online that's registered, your behavior is logged and you become the target of, of advertising, un, incessant advertising that, that feeds you what you tell the Internet triggers your dopamine release in the brain. So, sure, you're absolutely correct. It's a very dangerous time, which perhaps underscores more than anything why podcasts such as yours or my own tiny little efforts to try and put a message out there becomes all the more meaningful. Uh, I like what Anita Roddick used to say. She was the founder of the the body shop. She Mm -hmm. she passed away. (laughs) She used to say that if if you think if you think you're too small, if you think one little living being is too small to make a difference, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> I kind of like that. <laughs> you know, we we can make a difference. You know, we it, it sometimes feels overwhelming, but you make one little change within the circle that you have around you, the people you have around you, the activities around you, and that influences a wider circle and a wider circle. And in that way, from our tiny little place, we're connected to the universe. Well, that's a good uh, segue to the real the real purpose of our conversation, which is to talk about this spiritual wisdom of India. You know, um, I actually lived two years in India, Joshua, and um, oh. I, I just felt a deep... Connection. I, I thought I would live the rest of my life there, but uh, I was, you know, it wasn't to be. <laughs> I had other. I, it's like uh, uh, you've relived this past life long enough. Now it's time to move you on <laughs> to what you're really here to do. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, an amazing time, and I, I lived in South India. I lived in a community called Oroville, and I lived in a mud hut. <laughs> I lived a very simple life that was, uh, you know, very, very profound. So in India, you know, it's in my, it's in my being, you might say, somewhere in my soul. <laughs> I've been there. I've lived there. 
So um, I'm always fascinated by the spiritual wisdom of India because India, to me, is so profound. And that ancient, ancient, ancient land has held such a spiritual light for so long. So uh, I'd love to hear your um Let's start with a little bit about your journey, and then I would love for you to share more about the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, I'm a lost child of the 60s, like a lot of other people my age. I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where students spend more time protesting Dow Chemical than they did studying in classroom. And then at a certain point, I just got very uh, disappointed by the actions of the student movement and decided this just isn't for me. So I transferred to the Sorbonne in Paris. And there I met followers of Krishna consciousness, or bhakti, the bhakti tradition. Bhakti is a word that means devotion. It's the devotional root of Hinduism, you might say. And... uh I went to London on the Christmas holiday in 1969, just at the time when the Krishna students were recording an album of Indian devotional music with George Harrison. And so they took me with them because I played organ in a college band. And I'm hmm. thinking to myself, okay, if I stick with these people, I get God and the Beatles. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> And uh, I stayed 13 years. And food. (laughs) And good food, right? (laughs) Yes, all of that. (laughs) And um, that's that's what prompted my journey to India, was uh, receiving initiation from Prabhupada, who was the founder of the Krishna Society. And uh, Prabhupada was the real deal. I mean, they're... You you were in Oroville, and you're familiar with the work of Aurobindo and the mother. Uh, that's important. Uh, we need real teachers. We need inspiring teachers. And uh, you don't need a dozen. You know? If you connect with one, you're very fortunate. You know, and, and so you should develop that. And that, that was my good fortune. I met my teacher. And, uh you know, just really gave me a sense of a deeper dimension to life, to why we're here. I mean, the basic questions, who are we? Where do we come from? Why are we here? What is this amazing universe? Why is there something instead of nothing? Uh, and uh, after 13 years, I, I came back to New York because, well, first of all, I needed to. <laughs> If you're born in a, in a city like New York, it's in your blood, and you're going to come back eventually. <laughs> so I came back and finished my but That's your karma, university. Joshua. You're paying <laughs> off your karma. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like some pollution in the bloodstream or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, I, I love, I love the, the energy in New York, and so I set up shop here. I finished my degrees and started teaching here. And, um, it's been very rewarding. You know, I, I, sometimes somebody comes up 30 years later and says, oh, Yogeshwara, that's my 
initiated thing. Yogeshwar, do you remember that lecture you gave in you know, 1803? And you said this and that, and oh, it just—it was so important to me to hear that. I—I I have no idea what you said, but it's great to think that you know you can be of some service sometime. And uh, and that's our job, isn't it? Our job is to learn and then to pass it on. So that's what we try to do. Well, it's also interesting as we get into more about your your teacher. Um, the seed of that Krishna consciousness, that the Hare Krishna um, purpose, I would say, not not so much a, I mean, it is a movement, but it's, I don't, but it's a purpose, it's a, you know, the seeding of a consciousness in the United States began in New York when he arrived. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that story? And Sure, yeah. Um, Prabhupada was born, not even in the, 18, not in the 20th century, he was born in the 19th century, he was born in 1896 in Calcutta. And uh, when he was in his 20s, he met a person who became his guru, his teacher, Bhakti Siddhanta. And uh, Prabhupada, as a young man, really didn't have any interest in spiritual matters. He thought they were spiritual teachers were all charlatans. You know, we'd seen too many pretenders to have any interest in it. But when you met his teacher, Bhakti Siddhanta, he um, spoke with him and this was, he saw that this person is very intelligent and, and he's the right person to, to learn from. So he received initiation from Bhakti Siddhanta. And Bhakti Siddhanta saw in him an intelligent young man who said, you know, I think you're the right person to bring these teachings to the West. Teachings of the Bhagavad Gita and of the 15th century Bhakti Saint Chaitanya. Chaitanya was the person who began the chanting of the mantras. You know, the the whole mantra culture that we have now today really has its Mm -hmm. origins with Chaitanya, who was born in 1486. He brought the chanting of Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. He brought that into the public purview with parties that would go out with drums and hand cymbals. Um, so when people see Krishna devotees chanting in the streets or cities around the world, they're seeing something that's more than 500 years old. It has its origins back in, in Chaitanya's day in Bengal. And uh, so Prabhupada took that order from his teacher very seriously. It took a while. He he retired from family life, became a, a monk, a sannyasi, in the late 50s. And then eventually, having finally translated some books into English, he didn't want to come to the West without some books to to teach from. He left India in 1965 on a... On a cargo steamer he, he was the only passenger on this cargo boat and uh he had two heart attacks at sea it was a terrible crossing nearly died and arrived in new york with no money um he all he had was a box of his books that he had translated from the sanskrit and a little sack of cereal because he thought maybe i won't find anything vegetarian in America, so he brought a little sack of cereal with him. And uh, 
that from those humble origins started um, an inst- what is today an institution with millions of uh, supporters and, and centers and temples and ashrams and schools around the world. The the part of his teaching that most interests me, and I, and th- I think this part is important, um, is the part that deals with consciousness. Here, here are the basics. We are not the body, we are not the mind, but according to the ancient Sanskrit texts, we are a spark of eternal consciousness that is by definition immortal, beautiful, sublime, perfect, complete. <laughs> In other words, we're not the traumas of our life. We're not the sum total of all the sadnesses that we've experienced. We have them, but that is not who we are. We are a beautiful spark of God. This energy, or Atman, goes from body to body. Sometimes it's called reincarnation or samsara. Growing in knowledge, little by little, until finally we reach a point of understanding I'm something different. I'm not matter. I'm not material. There's a part of me that exists before this body. There's a part... That part of me will exist once the body fades away. That real me, that is the focus. That's the objective of all spiritual practices, not just in the bhakti tradition. All true spiritual disciplines aim at awakening our knowledge of ourselves as this spark, this atman, consciousness within us. And science has not been able to track the source of consciousness to any material point of origin. So it's, it, it, it is at least worth considering, <laughs> let's put it that way, that life is something non-material. I think that may be the most relevant part of all. The rest of it is a little hard for people. You know, when you talk about divinities and deities and, you know, the theistic side of the spiritual journey, is, that's kind of tough for some people. I guess I found that in you know when I teach in yoga studios, you want to talk about yoga and karma and samsara and this and that, fine. As soon as you introduce the idea of a personal divinity, that's when you start losing people. <laughs> I remember one young man raising his hand in a class at uh, Jiva Mukti where he used to teach for years here in New York. And he said, hey man, this is beginning to really sound too much like a religion. I just came here for a stretch. And he got up and he walked out. <laughs> and then there was something again. <laughs> the poor guy. I feel so bad. <laughs> you know, I've, I've learned to be a little cautious. You know, just keep it, keep to the basics. Stick to the basics and, and don't frighten people. <laughs> it's fine. So, what I, I, I'm curious. India is so ancient. It has such a, such an ancient history. Um, do we know where this wisdom originally came to us? How did it come to us? Where did it come to us from? Right. Well, if you go by the reference references in the text themselves, the knowledge is called apodusheya, which means that it originates at a point outside material creation. 
the, the, the knowledge of Atma, the knowledge of spirit, according to the Sanskrit texts, is embedded from the moment of creation. And what teachers do and what the contemplative practices do is bring that knowledge to the surface. In other words, it's not something imposed. It's there in each of us. It's already there just as part of our nature. The yoga, the meditation, the chanting, these are for bringing it out, awakening it, bringing it to the surface. You might consider it in this way, that um, when you buy a, a piece of software for your computer, it comes with instructions. You know, here's how you install it. <laughs> here's what you shouldn't do with it. Here's what it does. The, the, the knowledge that was sometimes called scriptural knowledge or wisdom is like that instruction book. It's how to live in the world of Maya, in the material environment, without becoming too entangled in it. How you can live in this world and become a jivan mukta, you know, a, a liberated soul, even within the material body. So that 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 description of transcendent knowledge points to something originating before the creation of the world. It came in as a kind of uh, guide, a study guide, if you will, for living in the material world. And. You know, when we when we go back to the mission of your teacher, um, you know, which he was given when he was in his twenties, he didn't get here till he was to the U.S. to the United States until he was seventy. What was his purpose? What? Why did he have a mission to bring this Krishna consciousness to the United States? Was there? Was he told why it was important? I, yes, of course. Um, look, if, if <laughs> the short form answer to your question is he came here because he loved people and he didn't want to see them suffer. He wanted to share with everyone what he had learned about the true nature of life. I mean, if you look at the things that challenge us today, yes, they're financial and political and psychological and so on. Fundamentally, uh, what, what we call the human condition is eternal beings trapped inside provisional bodies and identifying with those bodies. What's happening in Ukraine? You know, if you have someone who identifies with his place of birth, you know, I'm Russian, and his purpose is to fulfill that identity. Well, that identity is temporary. And if if you see yourself in terms of those material labels, there's no way that we're going to achieve harmony because your interests and those other people and people's interests and those other people's interests are always going to be different. We're always going to fight because we see ourselves as different from others. The the wisdom teachings suggest that you go deeper. What were you before you were born in a Russian body or an American body or a whatever your 
material place of origin is. What were you before those identities? Man, woman, black, white, eastern, western, rich, poor. Who are you underneath all of those things? Why should I love you? Well, it's not just because, you know, we come from the same neighborhood. <laughs> it's because within you is that same spark that is within me. That's a, a part of me there. We're family. <laughs> so that vision, that, that's, a, that's a very beautiful, profound place. And um, that's why he came west. He came west to inculcate that, to nurture that uh, from his compassion for seeing people suffering unnecessarily. The story of when he arrived after this dangerous, almost, you know, life-ending journey on this cargo ship, right? And then he arrives with a mission. I think that's what inspired me when I first heard you talk about this. Here was this humble man. I mean, he actually was not very wealthy, right? I mean, he he struggled a lot in his family life to earn a living and to be dedicated to translating these books. He he, he didn't have an easy life. Daryl, there was a point when he was he had so little money he was wearing rags. And the only food he ate was what people gave him. I mean, it, it reached that point. We'd call it homeless here. Yeah. And, uh, but his faith was unshakable that this, I've been given this mission. Um, I don't know what it is about this world, but it seems the people who are the best intending are the ones who suffer the most. You know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King. Let me just go down the whole list. Jesus, they they suffer the most. And um, I'll never forget this one time. I'm going to tear up here. I was with Prabhupada in Paris when some people came to visit him. And they were from a philosophical group. I won't mention any names. But they were somewhat full of themselves. And they said, um, uh, why don't you tell us what your what's your deepest teaching? And Prabhupada said, oh, well, um, we don't eat meat and we uh, don't take drugs or intoxicants and we're, uh, we, we, we only have sexual relations with our life partner and we don't fritter away money with gambling. They said, well, that, that's all exterior. What, what's your core teaching? What's your real teaching? Oh, he said, the core teaching, well, just vegetarian diet and <laughs> and they said but this is all superficial he says we 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 eat meat what does it matter and he, he looked at them and he said you you follow Jesus and you eat meat yes yes we do he said do you do you believe that Jesus died for your sins yes and then he started to cry, and he slapped his hand on the table, and he said, then why do you sin? Why do you continue to kill? And I'm looking at him, and I'm saying, 
what is, what's the tears all about? And it took me a while to realize that here was this person, my teacher, he knew something about what it means to give your life for God. He understood what that sacrifice was. He was identifying with Jesus. And um, I, I don't, I, since then, I, I don't know that I've ever felt that it's possible to, to go down that path, to really take the journey seriously without having to face the fire. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to get something that extraordinary without real sacrifice. So maybe it's extreme in the case of, you know, these great souls who had to give their lives. But in a sense, it's it's the classic hero journey. I mean, if you're familiar with Joe Campbell's mm-hmm. work, and I, I don't support everything that Mr. Campbell said, but there's something to the monomythic journey, you know, mm-hmm. that that we all some part of us has to die some some less mature part of us has to die in order for us to reach full adulthood and and I don't think that the spiritual journey is any exception to that yeah you know um Chris you never you would never know who who that being really is, you know, and the fire and that connection and his his soul's you know essence that directed his life with a passion. But uh, maybe it didn't matter all the other external things as much it would to us, right? When you're so driven because of the spiritual, you know, I can just the only word that comes to mind is spiritual flame inside you. Um, and and to me, the, um, what was, the, what really inspired me, and it inspired me to follow, follow up and find you and have you on the show, was this um, sense of having such an important mission in life that you would do whatever it took to uh, fulfill it and not give up because he only arrived here when he was 70 years old. Right? Yeah. He just began his mission here. This that was that was proclaimed fifty years before in his life. And then he the the moment arrived and he arrived here with very his bag of cereal and his eight dollars I think he once said and, and chanting. And that began this seeding of an amazing consciousness here in the United States. It's uh it's quite inspiring and um it may be the greatest tragedy of all that we live in a time when lies and propaganda are hurled at us at every moment of every day that you're not going to be happy unless you get this. You're not going to be fulfilled unless you have that. Do this, and this is the reward. And there's this, um, you know, kind of almost Pavlovian um, uh, maze that 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 that, that we're uh, accosted by every day, um, and people are susceptible to that. You know, 
people are not bad. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they're, they're, they're being weaponized. I can't think of any other word for it. Uh, by having their fears and their urges and cravings and yearnings and 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 and, and anger uh, um, preyed upon, and um, the the teachers, you know, those gifts to humanity who really have no other purpose other than to rectify that, um, tell us the same thing, which is. You know, simple living, high thinking, you know, you you are destined for a much greater <laughs> um, fulfillment, you know, than 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 just keeping up with with the trends. Um, Prabhupada didn't have much, you know, and yet he was the wealthiest person I've ever met in my whole life. Because he, he was filled with love. It was just pure love. And love is still the most powerful force in the universe, thank God. So, can you um, give us, um, when you talk about Krishna consciousness, um, because that's so much, you know, associated with the Hare Krishna organization and their work, what, you know, Share with us what that is in <laughs> ten words or less, Joshua. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I've been trying to figure that one out for the last fifty years. Um, it technically is the Western world uh, branch of the a very ancient uh, spiritual tradition in India, Chaitanya Vaishnava, Chaitanya being that teacher I mentioned before who popularized the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra Vaishnav meaning those who uh, embrace the notion of a personal divinity that there's that behind creation is not just um, uh, in uh, insentient uh, uh, forces uh, but there's intent and there's personality and there's intelligence and creativity behind creation and uh, Vaishnavas are the, the the largest numerically the largest percentage of, of Hindus are Vaishnavas of one kind or another um, and so technically when one speaks of the Krishna movement or Krishna consciousness they're referring to the western world um uh, communities uh, of that ancient Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition. It's um, it's become a bit of a cliche, I think, since the 60s, um, because in those early days, Prabhupada's students, uh, many of them, were disenfranchised. You know, they were um, young people, uh, very uh, discouraged by the um, what they called it, what we call at the time, I'll take some ownership here, the military industrial com- complex. And we were experimenting you know, with other forms of uh, um, human organization, you know, communes and farms and, and so on, different kinds of cooperatives. Um, so when Prabhupada came with 
that culture, that bhakti or devotional culture, which was communal living. It was shared vegetarian cuisine. It was, um, you know, these meditative practices. It also involved, you know, he came in the traditional garb, and so his students decided, all right, well, we'll dress like that too if we're going to be his students. So then the men shaved their heads and the women wore saris. And uh, so it, it became a look. <laughs> it became something that was identified as, you know, the Hari Krishnas, which is misnomer. Um, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> and since then, there's been a, a maturing a a uh, a much more i think thoughtful approach to um, living a devotional life that for the most part doesn't involve people changing their hairstyles or their wardrobes um it's embracing a a worldview it's embracing a perspective that life is sacred. And that really doesn't have anything to do with, you know, whether you like Indian food or not or you know, how you dress or whatever. Um, it's, a, it's a perspective on things. It's a beautiful one. Um, personally, I have, I have a personal interest in, in, this, in the points of tangency with science. I, I think that's a very exciting um, possible future because – if we acknowledge life as something separate from matter, then to give you an example, uh, devoted physicians treat their patients not as victims of disease, not as the product of accidents and, and, and trauma, but as um, spiritual beings who are entitled to care and service and patients have an active role in their own health and wellness. It's a very different approach than allopathic medicine, which is, uh, for the longest time has been very aggressive and, and um, uh, treats the, the disease without acknowledging the importance of knowing who the person is who is experiencing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So that's one example of the application of devotional teachings in a practical field, there are other applications. There's agriculture, you know, um, which is completely organic, and so I mean, we could go down the list: health, mm-hmm. wellness, areas of poverty, the the peace process. There are Krishna um, mediators working in the government who are called. There's a very good friend of mine who's the top mediator for the U.S. government in areas of uh, Native American. Um, Conflict, for example, the, you may be aware of the revelations recently of uh, these terrible uh, mistreatment of uh, Native American children in in government built schools. Um, it's a good friend of mine who is a fellow chanter and Krishna meditator, who is the mediator called upon to intercede um, across the country when there's that kind of. Um, uh, a, a dialogue, you know, between disputants between government and native lands. Um, in every field, you can apply this 
vision of life as something sacred, something non-material, to extraordinarily uh, good effect. So that 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 I'm interested in. Yeah, yes. Uh, I think that gets to the core of all these great spiritual teachings, doesn't it? And the different paths that people may take, which are many, but it's still the essence of that truth of recognizing the um, sacredness of life and, uh, and and understanding the deeper meaning of love, the sense of connection, this place where we are all um, originating from the same source <laughs> and um, manifesting it. I mean, that's the job, right? That's what heaven on earth is all about is doing that with that awareness. We have to have that awareness first <laughs> in order to to manifest it in our lives. Yes, precisely. That's precisely it. I mean, you've said it quite well. Um, and in order to, to do that, uh, there's need uh, for teachers who have uh, grasped, grasped the subject uh, and who have found a language with which to convey that wisdom into current applications. Each field has its own vocabulary. Medicine has its own vocabulary. You know, uh, the peacekeeping process has its own vocabulary. Science has its own vocabulary. And I think the job today is for those of us who try to identify with that greater wisdom to find the language that applies within our own particular field, whether one is in, you know, technology or in, you know, whatever it may be. There's to find a way of translating that. Let me give you. Can I can I give you one quick example? Oh, please do. Yes. Um, uh, because of my background in Holocaust history and war crimes trials. I'm called upon to speak before uh, uh, legal groups, state and uh, regional bar associations, for their continuing legal education programs. And I'll talk about the war crimes trials that took place at the end of World War II and so on. And I, I always wait for this one question, which inevitably someone asks, which is, have we learned anything from the Nazi trials, Nuremberg and others, that uh, informs the way we practice interna international law today. <laughs> so I'm ready for that one. And I'll say, well, I'll answer you, <laughs> but I'm going to answer you a little bit indirectly. Tell me how you define human life, and I'll tell you something about how you practice law. If for you a human being is nothing but a collection of inert oscillating molecular balls and springs, just some biological thing, then find a punishment to fit the crime and let's just go home. Just be done with it. If, on the other hand, as the wisdom traditions urge, if, on the other hand, you find that there's room in your definition of what it is to be a person, to be a human being, for something non-chemical, non-material, something, let's say, sacred, let's call it, use that word, 
then maybe your attitude toward capital punishment will change. Maybe your attitude toward education in uh, uh, penal institutions will be greater. Maybe you'll find that you are moving away from a punitive form of justice to a more restorative, uh, transformative kind of justice, as, for example, was demonstrated in South Africa during the post-apartheid era. Maybe many things would change if your definition of what it means to be human changes. And I believe that that kind of new vocabulary, if you will, can be found across the board in everything that we're attempting to do in our world today. And I think that's the challenge. Yeah, that's so profound because it's only by a shift of consciousness that we can really transform any of our institutions or our cultures on this planet. Yes. Otherwise, we're just shifting the load from one side of the desk to the other. You know, policies are good, but they're temporary. That's not going to bring us a long-lasting solution. Yeah. So it's, it's each person following their spiritual path. That's why there are so many options for us, right? But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter which, which way you get to that place of understanding yourself primarily as this expression of, of a, of spirit and a soul and having a body. It doesn't matter how you get there. Infinite ways. The important thing is beginning that journey of awakening again. Yeah, it took me a while to learn that one. <laughs> as as a young lad, you know, practicing Krishna consciousness, it was only it's Krishna, it's Krishna, don't you know? It's just Krishna, that's all that it is. Just chant Hare Krishna and everything will come from that. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, that was nice youth, youthful enthusiasm, but it wasn't particularly <laughs> practical. And um, I think I think I'm a little bit older now, a little bit more understanding, you know, as you say, it is. It's a big world out there, you know, and, and people come to the path in many, many different ways. So, you know, some some people get started because they've hit rock bottom, you know, and they just want to get out of dependencies or whatever it is. Other people, because they're 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 terribly disappointed with this notion that, you know, there's nothing at the end of life. We go through all these struggles just to die and that's it. We just evaporate and nothing's left. That's frustrating. Um, somebody else may come to the path. Uh, uh, I know some people came because they love the food, you know. Like, <laughs> whatever works. I, I can eat. Yeah, whatever works. So, um, well, you never know, you know, and you can't you can't be so... Uh, insensitive as to just push something and force doesn't work where our job is to encourage people you know um, and that we can all do from whatever our place is I, I w- remember with great fondness a discussion with Stuart uh, Stephen J. Rockefeller who I had a chance to talk to at that UN gathering of religious and spiritual leaders 
uh, Stephen is a practicing Buddhist. And so the cameras are rolling, and I get to ask him whatever I want. I say, so what's it like being a Rockefeller? And he took it seriously. He wasn't offended. He thought for a moment, and he said, well, you know, some of us are called upon to play out our parts on a grand stage, on a, on a world stage. Others among us on a more modest stage. But who's to say which is more important? I never forgot that. Who's to say which is more important? Our job is to take whatever opportunities for service there are presented to us and to make the most of them. I thought that was very smart. Well, that's very profound, and that's a beautiful note to um, end our conversation because we come to the end of our time. And it's just been an absolute delight to have you on the show, Joshua. I want people to know they can learn more about Joshua's work. A couple of websites, you can go to joshuamgreen.info. And the other uh, website to learn about the Gita Wisdom is uh, gitawisdom.org. And both uh, websites uh, take you to um, interesting, the interesting life of Joshua Green and his work and his passion and his uh, beautiful contribution of service to humanity, Joshua. Thank you so much for all that you do. And it's great that you're getting younger and healthier as you move into this uh, new decade. Well, you sure know how to make a guy feel good. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and to all my listeners, thank you for uh, sharing this wonderful hour with me and with Joshua and having this truly inspirational conversation. So until next time, I uh, welcome you back and uh, like to close the show by saying, may your week be filled with love, peace, and harmony. Bye for now. Thank you.